the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Right now, there's a situation brewing in the men's basic department. Men are being held hostage by overpriced brands that simply aren't mission-tested. That's why we're excited to tell you about Undertack, the only brand that's literally been battle-tested by special forces. These have to be the greatest boxers ever made because they cover all the bases. High-quality material that's antibacterial, anti-pilling, and moisture-wicking so you stay fresh and dry all day. Uh, I recently did a 30-mile run in preparation for an ultramarathon in a couple weeks wearing the Recon boxers, and they were absolutely incredible. I loved them. They have a quick-release fly and a secret pocket in the extra-wide waistband for cash or tactical necessities. Undertack is durable, ultralight, fade-resistant, and shrink-resistant. And here's the best part, they're almost 30% less than the competition. Go to getundertack.com. That's getundertack.com right now. Save 20% off your order with the offer code SITREP20. All one word, SITREP20. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. That is a great American company that's unapologetically pro-America, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-military. That's getundertack.com. GetUndertack.com Offer code SITREP20 Welcome to the Situation Report today. Very glad to have you joining me for what I hope will be an informative and helpful conversation. My name is Jeremy Stonlicker. I am your host and this is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. And again, just want to thank you for joining me. Before we get started, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, I normally wait to make this pitch until the end. Today, I'm going to make it in the beginning. So please, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, go ahead and do that. Whatever podcast platform you're listening for, listening from, go ahead and subscribe. That allows you to have this content as soon as it comes out. And we produce content like this, this podcast, uh, three times a week. And so there's always something coming out, some incredible guests, good conversations, and all with the intent of giving you information and perspectives that you can use to make decisions for yourself and for your family in a culture that is constantly changing. So make sure that you are subscribed. Other places that you can go to find out about us, but I would love for you just to start right there. If you'd like to watch this content instead of listening to it, you can also go to Salem Media. You can find the video content on SalemNow.com, SalemNow.com. You can find this and other content there. Today we're going to discuss a topic that is huge. It's a big topic. It's a big topic with a lot of information, many, many different directions that we could go, and uh, just a bunch of stuff, honestly, culturally, that would be hard to get to in the period of time that we have. But this is an issue that is so important. I felt like we needed to address it. This is a good opportunity to do that. 
We're going to discuss transgenderism, more specifically the transgender movement. And what I'd like to do today over the next couple of minutes is give four perspectives on the transgender movement. Now, I'm going to come back to this again. I've already said it twice. I'm going to say it one more time. Our goal on this show, our goal on this podcast is to give you information and perspectives So those two things are important. Information is, here are the facts. These are truths. These are things that are real. That's information and perspectives. So taking that information, here's how we look at an issue. Here are perspectives, information and perspectives that you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. We want to give you the information. We want to give you the perspectives, but we want to provide those for a reason. And the reason is so that you can make good decisions for yourself and for your family in a culture that is changing. I remember uh, growing up in a very conservative home. It was a home, uh, you know, when I was young in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, where issues around gender and sexuality were really not discussed that much. A lot of these issues were just accepted. Uh, we accepted in a conservative Christian home uh, that a man was a man, that a woman was a woman, that these are uh, biologically assigned roles, male and female, given to us by God. And when you're born, you're born either male or female. That was not a discussion we were having in our home because it wasn't a discussion that was happening in the larger cultural context. I'm sure it was happening in some places, but not in culture. We just accepted that this is male and female. Even when it came to issues like homosexuality, these are issues that were certainly being discussed in the late 80s and early 90s. But coming from a conservative Christian home, a conservative Christian perspective, there were some things we just accepted as being true. God did not create us to enter into homosexual relationships. This was accepted. Now I'm just talking about uh, how I grew up. The reason I share that is because these were not conversations we needed to have. These were not conversations that really impacted our day-to-day lives as uh, citizens of this country or as Christians. These were not things we were thinking about. Things have changed. (laughs) Maybe you've noticed that. Over the years, these conversations have not only become uh, more public, but they have become more mainstream. Several years ago, many years ago now, probably 10 years ago, uh, when we were discussing things like homosexual marriage and the legalizing of homosexual marriage, uh, some of those other issues, I remember talking to my dad and, and him really trying to convey to me that this was the beginning of a long series of conversations about issues that none of us ever thought we would have, that things were changing very dramatically, that some of these issues that we have known were there, known existed, were not issues that we ever thought we would have to discuss because they wouldn't impact our lives on a day-to-day basis. And certainly that has changed. He has been demonstrated to be right on that and many other issues over the course of my life, Uh, but certainly that one. And here we are. We're now at a place where this issue of transgenderism, what it means to be transgender, the larger issues of what is gender, what is male and female, what do these mean? These are real issues that we actually have to discuss because they are part of the cultural narrative right now. Uh, This is being talked about very, very publicly right now. But not only that, (laughs) these are not peripheral conversations. These are conversations that are impacting our homes, 
because we're told that if we don't accept the mainstream narrative, the politically correct narrative, there's something wrong with us. We're hateful. We are anti-human or anti-person or anti-choice. All of these things that you've heard. But not only are they impacting us because of what the culture is telling us to think and to believe, they're now impacting children. Now, maybe not your children. (laughs) If you, like me, have chosen to take your kids out of the public education system, you have much more control over what they're learning and what they're hearing and, and, and how they're forming their worldview. But so many of our children are being taught at, at a very young age that these issues of gender and gender identity and sexuality, uh, these, these transgender thoughts and ideas, these are normative. This is normal. We were created with this fluidity of gender, and we need to embrace that. What's interesting is that as our kids are being taught this in public schools and in other uh, education settings, they're being taught not that it's normative only, but that it is what should be preferred and accepted. We're in a very, very dangerous place. Now, in my own life, (laughs) it's okay for me, at least, To look at what's happening in the world and say, well, that's what's happening in the world of people who don't hold a biblical worldview. It's not surprising to me that people that reject the idea of God, reject the idea of a creator, would hold views that are different than mine. In fact, if you reject the idea of God, it is a natural conclusion to come to the conclusion that maybe you're God that you get to form your own life and your own world and your own view of the world in your image. That is making yourself God. It's at the very least creating an idol of who you are, the individual. It's one thing for me to accept that the world outside of the Christian world, those outside of a biblical worldview, those who reject the idea of God, would come to different conclusions about this than I would. But what we've seen happen, and this is why I'm talking about this today. This is a topic others have talked about I didn't want to deal with, but I felt like I needed to at least address it today. What we've seen happen is not just that those without a biblical worldview are accepting this changing understanding of gender and sexuality and identity, but that those within the church, those who claim to be Christians, Those who, by virtue of claiming to be Christians, claim to hold a biblical worldview, are now accepting that that's okay. That it's okay to reject the ideas of sexuality and gender and the roles of men and women in society, in the world, and in the home. The roles that are given to us in the Bible. We are seeing more and more Christian people Instead of pushing back on these ideas while holding the truth of God's Word, the Bible, are accepting it. Now, many will accept it on a very reasonable premise. (laughs) The premise is this. We are to love all people. We are to love people that are different than us. We are to care for people that are different than us. In fact, if you are one who accepts the ideas of the gospel, you believe that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.16 tells us this. You're familiar with that verse, I'm sure. You've probably at least seen it on a poster at a football game. (laughs) It's out there. John 3.16, God so loved the world. If you accept that and believe that, then you believe the next part, that He sent His only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We believe as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, as those who hold to a biblical worldview, we believe that man is sinful, that sin is falling short of God's measure of perfection, that because of our sin, we cannot have a relationship with God, but that God loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place for our sin so that we could have the forgiveness of our sin and be reconciled to God, that we could have a relationship with him, not because of our own goodness, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his. If you believe that, and I do, and many who are listening would believe that, if you don't believe it, you should, in my opinion. That's what the Bible says. That's what God tells us. But if you take that position as a Christian, and this is what I'm getting to, then you would say, and rightfully so, Jesus Christ died for everyone. That when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to provide the payment for the sins of everyone. Now we know that not every person will accept that gift of salvation. Not everyone will put their faith in Jesus and what he did and had their sins forgiven. We understand that, but Jesus Christ died for everyone. That's a true statement. We could go to the Bible and outline that and work through that and understand Jesus died to pay the price for sin. That there are a lot of different sins, but that all sin, what we would consider small sin, what we might consider big sin, it doesn't matter. To God, all sin prevents us from having a relationship with Him. And Jesus Christ died to forgive that sin so that we could be reconciled to Him. So a Christian will then take the next step and say, well, if that's the case, then we need to accept everyone, even those who are living a lifestyle that would be contrary to the Bible. Further, there are people who say, well, the ideas of Scripture, the ideas of the Bible are outdated or outmoded, that what the Bible tells us about some of these issues, that it was cultural. So it made sense then, but it doesn't make sense now. And what's so troubling about that is people who say that have no concept of history. (laughs) Because when the Bible, particularly the New Testament, was written, it was written at a time and in a place where some of the same discussions about sexuality were taking place. We'll look at a couple of passages as we work through this today. Uh, But The Apostle Paul speaks on some of these things at a time when the Roman Empire was uh, the shadow over the entire world, and these issues of sexuality were very present in the day-to-day lives of those who lived within that empire. Paul was stating these things at a cultural moment when people just like you and me were trying to decide what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to respond. I say all of that to get to this. If we are going to be good citizens, if we are going to be good husbands and wives, if we are going to be good parents raising our children to live in a world that may live in a way or view the world differently than you do, we have to be thinkers. We have to ask questions instead of just going with the flow and accepting what's presented to us as normative. We need to ask real questions. And that's what I want to do today for just a couple of minutes. Again, here's my disclaimer, if I can put one in here. There are uh, thousands probably of different directions we could go with this conversation. 
We could go <laughs> so many different directions. We could talk about so many different aspects and so many different things. We can't do that in a conversation like this. What I want to do is simply provide four perspectives on the transgender movement. Three, and then the final fourth, a biblical perspective. But I want to look at three different uh, areas first, three different perspectives first, before we get to the biblical perspective. Um, and, and this is intended to be uh, kind of a food for thought episode. I want to give you some thoughts that hopefully will spur you on and cause you to think more deeply instead of simply accepting what we have been told. I want to give four perspectives because we'll get to the biblical perspective, but this is an issue where we need to understand this is not simply the Bible versus everyone else. <laughs> there are some real issues that you need to be aware of if you're not already uh, that are even outside of what the Bible says. And the Bible gives us the perspective that we need. I believe we should function in accordance to that biblical worldview. But there are some other issues we need to consider before we even get there. And we're going to jump into this. Four issues, four perspectives that I want to give to you. The first one is this. It's what I am simply calling the constitutional perspective. It sounds really important. Mostly, I didn't know what else to call it. Uh, but I'll call, I'll call it the constitutional perspective. Here's what I mean. Uh, I believe that there is, in the United States, the freedom of choice. <laughs> we get to choose what we do with the bodies that we have been given. Now, again, depending on who's listening to this right now, you may have either really pushed back on that last statement. Maybe you're curious as to where I'll go with it. Uh, maybe you accept it just because I said it. I hope not. Uh, but here's what I mean. I believe that in the United States, we live under an understanding that we are autonomous human beings, that our government exists to protect our rights as citizens, not to give us our rights as citizens. We go to the Declaration of Independence. I've talked about this often, and in the Declaration, so clearly spelled out is the origin of our rights as humans. Those inalienable rights that are given to us were given to us by God. We have been given rights by God, not by the government. With that, we get to choose what we think. We get to choose what we do. We get to choose how we behave. These are not things that should be foisted upon us, as the government likes to do. These are opportunities that we, as autonomous, independent, free human beings get to make. We get to decide what we're going to do. Now, when it comes to this issue of transgenderism, I believe the same thing. <laughs> now, let me say this. I don't have to agree with your choice to believe you have the right to choose. There are a couple of different aspects of that, however, and this is where we need to be very careful to think. Forcing children to undergo procedures when they're really not even formed to the point, mature enough to make rational decisions, to understand the consequences, the good, the bad, uh, the possibilities, uh, that is not the freedom of choice. For an adult to look at themselves and say, I would like to inject some kind of a hormone to change how my body functions, uh, those, those other uh, issues that we could talk about, uh, I believe an adult, a free-thinking adult, has the right to do that. To the point 
that that adult exercising their freedom to do what they want to with their body does not impact what others must do. Again, this is a much larger conversation. Uh, Someone might push back on me and say, well, uh, this is the same argument many make for abortion. The pro-abortion argument is that a woman has the right to do with her body what she chooses to do. And to that, I would agree to the point that she can do with her body what she chooses to do, but she has no right to end the life of someone else's body. And that child she carries within her is not her uh, her life, it is not her body, it is another body that she is carrying. She does not have the right to decide whether that body, that child, that person lives or dies. So, The constitutional perspective is this. I believe that people have the right to do whatever they want to, as long as they're old enough to make that decision, whatever they want to with their bodies. As long as that decision does not impact what other free, autonomous human beings must do with theirs. So I want to start there. This has nothing to do with me telling you what I believe you should do. You have to do it because I believe it. I'll start there. The second perspective, though, and this is one that we have got to take seriously. The second perspective is the perspective of the individual. The individual perspective. We have come to a place where we believe that if someone exercises their right as an autonomous, independent, free human being to inject hormones, to have surgery done to their body, to attempt to change who they are, that that's okay and that there's no harm in that. Now, my first perspective, that constitutional perspective says, I believe that if someone wants to do something to themselves, that's on them. Each person answers to God for what they do. They don't answer to me. However, we should not accept a really lie that is being told to us That this is better for the person that's going through a process of transitioning. And by the way, you can't transition from one gender to another. You can change your body, you can inject hormones, you can have surgeries, but you can't become something other than you are. X and Y chromosomes, they exist. For a Supreme Court uh, justice nominee to say she cannot determine what is male and what is female, what is a man and what is a woman because she's not a biologist, is either absolutely ignorant or completely divisive and um, just just a lie. (laughs) Men and women are genetically determined. You can't change who you are. You can't transition from one to the other. It's not possible. But you can transition, change uh, your body in ways that would make you look like something else. Walt Heyer is someone that we've interviewed on this show before. In fact, I think he may have been the second episode, maybe the first episode, uh, that we pushed out of this, uh, pushed out for our, our podcast um, over a year ago now. Walt is an incredible human being. He was someone that grew up with the belief that he should have been born a girl, but he was born a boy. He talks about when you hear him talk and he writes about abuse and a lot of other things that he endured. And in his 40s, he went through this process of transi- transition. He had, an, uh, had a surgery and became, for all intents and purposes, again, you can't really transition, but for all intents and purposes, became a woman, lived as a woman, uh, had his body altered to function like a woman, uh, wore women's clothes, and he lived that way for some time. 
And then he came to a point where he realized how much damage he had done to himself. And you can read his, his uh, story. Walt Heyer is his name, H-E-Y-E-R. You need to check him out. And went through a process of what's called detransitioning. And this is a big issue that is being discussed currently. Uh, many men and women who have gone through this process, one direction, realize it was a mistake and try to go back. He went through that process and now spends his life trying to help particularly young men and women, uh, boys and girls who are struggling with some of these things. He writes on all of these issues. And I want to read an article by Walt uh, from 2019 uh, by Walt Heyer. The title of the the article, if you'd like to look it up, is Diagnosis of Gender Dysphoria, Too General and Too Much Harm. Now, I just gave you his background. He's lived through this. Uh, Walt is now, I believe, in his 70s. He's older. And so he's trying to help. He's written a lot. He's studied this. He understands it. I want to read parts of this article to you, and I'll make some commentary along the way. But remember, uh, this is a perspective that deals with the individual. This is the individual who is going through this process, who is struggling with this idea. Here's what he says. This is the opening sentence. The diagnosis of gender dysphoria prematurely puts people on a path to transition while trivializing and dismissing contributing factors such as alcohol and drug abuse, sexual fetishes, and coexisting psychological disorders. The trans, and he puts it in quote, treatment, being idolized today should meet the same fate as lobotomies, tooth pulling, and colon removal tossed on the historical rubbish heap of debunked horrific experiments perpetrated on innocent, hurting people. That is a great paragraph. There's a couple of things I want to point out to you. First of all, uh, that is coming from a man who's been through this process. That's number one. Number two, this speaks to what the individual is going through. This is extremely compassionate, and he's approaching this from a compassionate standpoint. His perspective, if you will, is what is the individual dealing with? We are having this conversation about transgenderism. We are talking about a transgender movement where we're using the individuals who are in the process of this transitioning and dealing with all of these things. We're using them as pawns for really political reasons. We're trying to accomplish something politically. We're trying to change and shift things culturally with very little regard for the individuals that are struggling through these processes. And Walt here says that when we diagnose gender dysphoria prematurely, we are, uh, he says, trivializing and dismissing contributing factors. Uh, Man, what a great paragraph. I want to read some more. This is so important. The diagnosis of gender dysphoria defined as a conflict between a person's physical sex and the one with which he or she identifies is so general that it can embrace any of a multitude of other ailments. But once gender specialists decide on the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, they stop looking further. Did you get that? When the specialist, he says, decides on the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, they stop looking for any contributing factors. So there may be underlying factors to this presenting problem, and yet once the diagnosis is made, no one is looking any further. So we're not actually asking the question, what is this person sitting in front of me dealing with? What's causing this? If a concerned patient or parent reveals something such as abuse or mental illness that seem to be a trigger, 
The specialist considers it less pertinent. Even ongoing drug or alcohol abuse is ignored. Swept up by the broad diagnosis of gender dysphoria, innocent people receive non-reversible gender-affirming treatment. I think you understand those words. I want to jump down a little bit. Again, the damage that's done. Walt says here, and he gives a source that he cites, psychological conditions present in almost 70% of people with gender dysphoria. And they include anxiety disorder, that's panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, mood disorders, uh, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, and he goes on and on. Psychotic disorder, disassociative disorder, substance abuse disorders. Disassociative disorder was found in 29.6% of those with gender dysphoria, and 45.8% had a high prevalence of a lifetime major depressive episode. This is absolutely incredible. Now, if you go back and find the episode we did with Walt when we began this podcast, uh, you can go just go to the archives and go all the way back to the beginning. You'll find our episode with Walt Heyer. In that episode, Walt said to me that 100%, (laughs) 100% of the young men and women that he has dealt with and tried to help through this issue are the victims of trauma. 100%. Now, you could say, well, that's anecdotal. That's his story. That is his story, but this is what he does. But here he gives uh, data-backed statements about the 70% of people with gender dysphoria who are suffering from psychological conditions. This isn't his opinion. This is research. This is study. He goes on in this article, and I won't read all of this, but he says that now most of the emails that he receives are emails from men and women who have gone through a process of transition who are trying to turn it around and asking how they can get back to where they were. I could talk about this for a long time, but I won't. Again, in the context of the time that we have, there's much more to be discussed here. But a second perspective on the transgender movement (laughs) is the individual perspective. What we're doing when we are diagnosing young men and women who are struggling with their identity as having gender dysphoria, and then we are prescribing uh, medications, hormone blockers, surgeries, other things to, uh, we call it gender affirm, (laughs) who they believe they were created to be, even though they were born with a different sexuality and gender. Uh, We are looking past the actual issues they're dealing with. We here, my day job is working with an organization that helps men and women who are dealing with trauma. Most of those come from either the military community or the first responder community. And instead of saying, why are you acting this way? Let's stop acting this way. Or let's make accommodation for the way you're acting. You're treating your family horribly. You're damaging yourself through drugs and alcohol. You're doing all of these things that are so destructive. Instead of making accommodation for that, what we do, and this I don't know why this is so hard to understand, what we do is we say, let's go back and figure out what's causing this. What trauma began this journey that you're on? How do we address the traumas? How do we address the difficulties and the trials, the obstacles, the stuff that is in your past that's brought you to behaving this way? And then let's figure out how to move forward from here. 
And when we simply diagnose someone who's struggling with their sexuality as having this gender dysphoria, and then we do all we can to affirm that, what we're affirming in so many cases, so many cases, we're affirming the trauma, the hurt, the trial, whatever it is in their life that has brought them to this place of absolute psychological and mental confusion. This is not a zero-sum game. It is not compassionate to pretend that people who are broken and hurting and are looking for help have no problems. (laughs) And that what they're going through is normal. And that we should simply affirm their brokenness. That is the individual perspective, I believe, until we are willing to really get behind it and ask what's actually going on. We have no right to go anywhere else. For whatever reason, political or otherwise, we've decided to skip over the real problem and move to what we think needs to be accepted. There is another perspective, though, that I want to share with you, and this is what I'm calling the cultural perspective. We have the constitutional perspective. We have the individual perspective. There is a cultural perspective, though. There is an impact on culture when we begin to normalize uh, these gender issues. I don't even know what to call them. The names change all of the time. The terms and the phrases change. But when we normalize this idea of fluidity of gender, we create cultural issues. Now, I already spoken to the issues created when school districts and local schools and teachers decide that children in kindergarten and first and second grade and on up through school, that a part of their instruction where they should be learning how to write their letters and count their numbers and do the other things that you learn in school, skills that you need, part of that should also be an understanding of what it means to be transgender, what it means to be homosexual, uh, sexuality, the larger conversation with children who have no concept of those ideas and then begin to push our agenda on them, that is a cultural issue that will certainly bear consequence and bear fruit in the years to come. There's another great article that speaks to this, um, uh, written by Abigail Schreier. Abigail has written a a number of uh, things. She wrote a book entitled Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Uh, She has written several articles on this, this one for Hillsdale College in their Imprimus magazine. And she writes on this issue of how the larger transgender movement impacts culture. She's specifically focused on how it impacts uh, young women, but we can see the larger impact on this. Uh, I won't read this entire article to you. It's a, it's a great article. Uh, it breaks down so many of these issues. Uh, but she gets down to uh, trans identification among teenage girls. I want to read a part of this and then get to kind of the, the core of this article. Trans identification among teenage girls. She says this, as I mentioned for, for the near, as I mentioned, <laughs> this is earlier in the article, for the nearly 100 year history of scientific study of gender dysphoria, it has been diagnosed almost exclusively in young children and mostly in boys. But over the last decade, large numbers of teenage girls have begun to claim they have gender dysphoria. Prior to 2012, in fact, there was no scientific literature on gender dysphoria arising in teenage girls. I mean, get a hold of that before I move on. Before 2012, there was no scientific literature on gender dysphoria arising in teenage girls. Now, in 2022, it is common for us to prescribe for governments, (laughs) uh, state and local governments, to pay for surgeries for young girls to transition and um, 
I could spend time there. I won't. Dr. Lisa Littman, then a Brown University public health researcher, I'm continuing to read the article, used the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria to refer to the subsequent sudden spike in transgender identification among teenage girls with no childhood history of gender dysphoria. This spike is not unique in America. We see it across the Western world. To offer just one statistic, there has been a decade-to-decade increase of over 4,400% in the number of teenage girls seeking treatment at the United Kingdom's National Gender Clinic. Across the West, teenage girls are now the leading demographic claiming to have gender dysphoria. Uh, She asked the question, what is behind this social contagion? The spread of ideas, emotions, and behaviors through peer influence One more instance of teenage girls sharing and spreading their pain. There's a long history of social contagion with this demographic. Anorexia, bulimia, they were also spread this way. And we know that teen girls today are in the midst of the worst mental health crisis on record with the highest rates of anxiety, self-harm, and clinical depression. We could go on. She does go on. And I would encourage you to take a look at this article. Uh, I'll read another section here in just a minute. But the explanation, and this is where we look at a cultural perspective, is that when we normalize these behaviors that are abnormal, those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who are dealing with so many of these issues, and young teenage girls uh, are often dealing with many of these issues, they look at behavior that is not normal, but has been normalized, and they lean into that as an answer for the pain that they are feeling. That goes back to what Walt says, Walt Heyer, in the article that I read just before this one, that 70% of those who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria have struggled with, have been diagnosed with mental disorders. There is a connecting problem. But when we normalize the behavior Those who are struggling and broken, instead of getting the help that they need, they lean into abnormal, uh, I would say anti-God behavior. She continues and gets to this issue of what she calls the assault on women's sports and safe spaces. I want to read this. No discussion of gender ideology can ignore the ongoing movement to eradicate girls' and women's sports and protective spaces. Many or most of the people pushing this are not transgender themselves, but they are activists. They are energized, and they seem to be winning. This movement promotes dangerous bills like the Equality Act, which would make it illegal ever to distinguish between biological men and women, and thus to exclude a biological male from a girls' sports team or a women's protective space, whether it be a restroom, locker room, or prison. We have these laws now in California and in the state of Washington. And as you might imagine, one result is that hundreds of biological male prisoners, many of them violent felons, have applied to transfer to women's units. For activists pushing this, it is not enough to create unisex bathrooms, a separate category for trans-identified athletes, or separate safe zones in prisons for trans-identified biological men. No, they are working to abolish all women's only spaces, and they want to abolish them now. The common thread running through these topics, that the truth is being obscured by gender ideology. Um, Again, this goes on. There's a lot more in this article. You need to check it out. But there is a real cultural impact. Now, here's what I used to believe. And I started with this in the beginning. I used to believe that what happens over there doesn't impact me here. That I could say, well, what's happening over there, uh, that's happening over there. Those aren't Christian people. They're not like me. That's happening over there, but it has no impact on me. 
what uh, Abigail Schreier is saying in this article is that there is a real cultural impact that manifests itself in all of our lives if we allow issues like this one, if we allow these gender-related conversations to, as she says, run amok. (laughs) Now, even the rights of women, which so many have fought for for so long, have been cast aside as unimportant so that the rights of those who are struggling with their own identity, the rights of what we are told is less than 0.02% of humans is more important than our daughters, our mothers, our wives, the women in our society, the women in our culture, those who have been fought for and have fought for so long to have their rights recognized. There's a real cultural impact for those of us who refuse to stand up for the truth. We started with a constitutional perspective. Our, constitutional, our constitution provides protection for our individual rights. Can people do what they will to their bodies? They can. They have that right. Whether I agree with it or not, they can. They have that right. This is America. (laughs) And even many of our rights have been infringed upon, but I believe they have that right. To the point that it does not then impede or impinge on the rights of others. There is a line. But we look at the individual perspective, and the individual perspective is that the majority of cases we're looking beyond the hurt that is actually taking place in the life of an individual. When we suggest that they go through a process of body-affirming procedures, this has become such a political talking point that we are neglecting the trauma, the trial, the pain, the hurt, in many cases the depression that the individual is suffering with so that we can normalize abnormal behavior. Broken individuals, we're looking past them. And then we sometimes say, well, that won't impact culture at large. It is. We see it every day. It's impacting the classrooms. It's impacting the conversations culturally, certainly in our media. It's impacting everything. It's impacting women's sports. One example, certainly, of the impact, but it demonstrates this idea of biologically male athletes who've said to transition, now competing against women, it it has shown that those who are activists in this area, who are pushing forward this idea, do not care about what they once said they really cared about, the rights of the individual, and in particular, the rights of women. Why women are not standing up in greater numbers, I don't understand. Some are, and we're thankful for that. Many are not. Many who have given their life's work to this idea of feminism, (laughs) the rights of the woman. Whether I agree with that movement or not, those women, given their lives to it, have all of a sudden become very, very quiet about this issue. It's incomprehensible. But we come to this last perspective, and I saved this last one, uh, this one for last, because I believe for Christians, if you're a Christian, this is where you should start. But certainly, this is what troubles me the most. That Christian people, people who claim to have a biblical worldview, people who claim to believe what the Bible says, have accepted 
these ideologies and these philosophies as okay, even though God has said they're not okay. Again, we could spend a lot of time here. I want to read parts of an article entitled, entitled Transgender Identity, Wishing Away God's Design by Dr. Owen Strachan. Um, uh, Owen is fantastic on so many of these issues. But Transgender Identity, Wishing Away God's Design. He, he begins by saying this, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 says, God made them male and female. No matter how hard some people try, they can't wish away this fundamental physical reality. And that's a good thing. Um, He goes on. uh, There's so much here. Check this article out. But under the section entitled, How Should We View the Body as Christians? This is is what I want us to get to. How should we view the body as Christians? And before we jump into this, I need to state one more time. If you are a Christian and you claim a biblical worldview... You can give a lot of reasons for accepting other, other worldviews, other positions, other philosophies, other ideals and ideologies. But that doesn't change what we hold to as the truth. There is one truth. And that one truth is God's truth. So in all of these issues, we need to come back to what does God say about this? Uh, he begins to break this down. He says, radical individualism casts off all moral restraints in order to achieve maximum personal happiness. It's the idea that I can do whatever I want, and God exists to make all my dreams come true. This perspective has influenced how many people view their body. The body is not made by God for His glory. It is a blank slate upon which we may draw any identity, any self-expression we choose. Use it, abuse it, do whatever you want with it, this is a neo-pagan idea. You've got to get a hold of that. I've talked about this so often on this show. What is our purpose? Humanity's purpose, the big purpose, is to do what? Give glory to God. God created us to have a relationship with Him and in relationship to live our lives in a way that glorifies Him. He is our Creator. And how we live and what we do, how we behave with others, what we think, how we speak, should reflect who He is. That's got to be the starting point. And yet this idea that I can define even my gender means that I am the starting point. That's what Owen is saying here, that we have made ourselves God. He goes on, the Bible teaches a very different perspective. Our manhood or womanhood is not incidental. It's not an accident. Man, So many people, they feel as though they have no purpose and they're floating. God made you exactly how he wants you to be. It's not incidental. He goes on, it has been given us by God as a gift. We inhabit our God-created bodies as vessels of delight, temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Here's 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. What a great point. (laughs) God tells us that He indwells our bodies. He made us how He wants us to be. Our sexuality, um, Owen goes on, points to what theologians call complementary. Men and women are one kind. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 39. For for not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So we're created the same, but we're not the same. (laughs) Humankind, created by God, 
but we're not created exactly the same. We're one kind. He says this is true in several respects. As Scripture indicates and common sense shows, men and women are different anatomically. Uh, When I teach on some of these issues, uh, I'll often, in joking, ask the question, uh, raise your hand if you think men and women are exactly the same. And no one ever does. Uh, Why? Because it's apparent that we're different. To pretend as though we can't tell what a man or a woman is, is absolutely ridiculous. We have been created different. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23, Then the man said, this is... And this is la- this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We're different. Loved by God the same, created by the same God, given significance and purpose and direction by God, but different. Non-Christian scientists have recognized the bodily differences of the sexes. Anne and Bill Moore, for example, note that men have... Uh, on average, 10 times more testosterone than women. Studies show that women use a vocabulary that is different enough from men's to be statistically significant. We are distinct emotionally too. The scripture gives voice to this reality when it calls godly husbands to treat their wives as the weaker vessel and challenge fathers not to provoke their children. I don't want to spend a lot of time getting bogged down in the weaker vessel, but it shows there's a difference. He goes on in this article. He gives Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, Genesis 2, 23, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. We are complementary. We were created by God to complement one another. Uh, weaknesses in one and strengths in the other complement one another. But then sin entered the world. God created us exactly how He wanted us to be, male and female. Created He them, we're told. But sin entered the world. We rebelled against the plan of God, and sin, that rebellion against God, perverts everything. It corrupts everything. And in so many ways, it even corrupted the distinction between man and woman, between male and female. We get to the point where now, So many men and women, they have elevated themselves to the place of an idol. We can see this in many arenas in our world, but certainly in this where we decide whether we are going to be male or female. We decide that we would rather choose what we're going to be instead of allowing God to determine who we are. When we look at this from a biblical perspective, we need to understand how God created mankind, man and woman, male and female, distinctions given to us by the Creator, God. We we don't get to determine that. The lines between those distinctions are blurred because of sin. Sin, that rebellion against God, it perverts everything, and it causes tremendous self-will. It's us against the truth of God. That's what sin does. And when we look at ourselves, our sin nature would tell us to be self-determinant against a holy God, against a creator, to determine what we want to do for ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 1, talks about mankind perverting what God created, laying with mankind the idea of homosexual relationships being a perversion of what God intended. And the devil loves this because God created us in his image. He created us with purpose uh, to be the image bearers of himself, to demonstrate who he is to the rest of the world. And if that can be perverted and broken down, then Satan wins because we're no longer living a life that points others back to God, that reflects him and gives him honor and glory. 
even in the context of marriage and in human relationships. Uh, we find in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find in Ephesians chapter 5, we find in the book of 1 Peter, we find throughout the New Testament example after example of how men and women are to interact with one another, understanding our differences and our ability to use those differences to complement one another, to be complete what God created us to be. You see, this transgender movement and these discussions that are being had, not only are they contrary to the Bible, they are anti-God. They are the antithesis, they are the opposite of what God intended. And for a man or a woman to decide that they're not good enough in the body that God gave them, is for that man or woman to idolize their body in a way that says, I'm more important than God. I will change who I am into the image that I've created in my own mind. Created in our own image instead of the image of God. So many problems with that, of course, but one of the big ones is this, that God created us as enough. He created us with purpose. He created us with meaning. He gives us hope. He gives us life. He gives us direction. And all of that comes to the person that understands there are failings and frailties. There are difficulties and emotions. There are struggles. There are traumas. But in all of it, God, our Creator, has a plan and a purpose and a will. This is not simply an issue that those people over there are dealing with. And it's not an issue that we as Christian people can remain silent on and assume that it will never impact culture at large or our homes and our children. It certainly will. We come to this show three times a week. And we sit and we talk about topics and we invite guests and we ask the question, what's happening right now? That people who really care about making the right decision, not simply going with the flow, but making the right decision. What's happening right now that those good people need to have the right information and the right perspectives to make the right decisions? And this is an issue that we, whether we like it or not, must deal with. What are you going to do? I can't prescribe an action, but I will certainly encourage you to do this. Investigate further. Ask the right questions. Ask the question, what's happening in the heart of a person who would decide they want to go through a process of transitioning their gender? Ask the question, how does that reflect on who God is and who we believe Him to be? Ask the question, if there is truth given to us by God, why would we want to accept or live in light of any other philosophy or ideology? Ask the question, What tools do I need to give to my kids who are growing up in a culture that believes very, very differently than the God who has given us life? I hope that those perspectives are helpful to you today. I believe this is one of those conversations that you can love or hate, you can want to engage in or not, but I believe it's one that all of us need to think about. And I would encourage you, take this, don't only listen to it, Send it to other people. There are some people that need to hear this, and this can serve as a starting point. Uh, I make uh, no claims that this is the end-all and be-all of this conversation. Much better people than me have talked about this. (laughs) But you have got 
to figure out for yourself what God wants you to do, the impact on culture at large, how we can help people or who are hurting, and what you're going to do in a culture that is always changing. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I believe this can be a helpful episode. Share it out with others, and we will talk to you next time. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD. You know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like... <laughs> I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went, and I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America, and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.